Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, good evening, everybody. Hope everybody's had a great day where we were at. It was raining quite a bit today. So if you got some rain, hope that everything was okay with you. But the Lord replenished the earth, getting us ready for this good spring season that's coming. So we can get ready to plant all of our vegetable gardens. And today we're going to, this is our Theology Thursday. And so today we're going to be answering the question, what does radical redemptive change look like for an eight-year-old? I tell our folks all the time at uh, Friendship Baptist Church that whenever you come to faith in Jesus Christ, if uh, it's it's a heart transplant, it's described as from death to life. uh, And so if, if... if God has impacted you in those ways, brought you from death to life, from a spiritual resurrection and taken the heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh, that that is radical redemption. That's radical change. And there ought to be, there ought to be a difference in who we are and how we, how we live. And so one question that's raised out of that is what does that look like for an eight-year-old? And so I get the, I get the implication of the question. If we're older and adult, uh, then we will uh, have experienced more life and therefore probably experienced more sinfulness, if you will. And you might be able to see a drastic difference in the way a person lives their life as to, uh, opposed to how they used to live their life. But if you're a young person, when you come to faith in the Lord, what does that look like in a young person's life who hasn't had the length of time in theory to live um the kind of maybe broad spectrum sinful lifestyle that uh that adults may have so we're going to attempt to answer that question a little bit uh today and as always we'll put this on our podcast rk ministries and you can find that wherever podcasts are found uh and you can uh, please go like it subscribe to it and share it with your friends and obviously here on facebook live and i will upload it later on uh youtube and uh rumble as well and you can find us there and go follow them and again i will make a plea to anyone who has a little bit of uh technological savvy if you can help me figure out which programs i might could use with the setup i have to do this simulcasting uh from my iphone to um at least youtube and facebook live at the same time but suffice to say we're going to do what we do right now and we're going to get into uh this question and so I, I thought the way we need to start at this question because i think some of some of our misunderstanding about this concept of what change looks like sometimes stems from a misunderstanding of anthropology uh, we don't look at the study of humanity uh who we are as human beings a lot of times we don't look at it from a biblical perspective completely we have been influenced and impacted by our culture as it relates to who we are as uh, human beings so the first thing that we need to understand is what is a biblical 
anthropology. And of course, if you've been with me at Friendship Baptist Church or listened to the sermons we've been going through in Romans, we hit that very, uh, I say very hard, we, we hit that uh, quite extensively in the first part of Romans leading all the way up to Romans chapter 3 with Romans chapter 3 being the capstone chapter, I think, to deal with this idea of our uh, who we are as human beings prior to the conversion or redemption that God works in us in Christ Jesus. And so our problem is that we too often think that we are by nature uh, good people. And you've seen this before. You see it on uh, Facebook, if you spend any time on there, especially when a tragedy or an event takes place that is a horrific event and somebody commits, you know, some atrocity in society, uh, inevitably you're going to find someone who writes an article or makes a post that, and for all practical purposes, says, hey, uh, humanity is basically good. There's just a few bad apples uh, out there that make, you know, that, that make people look bad but the majority of of us are good and we are by nature good and it's the circumstances and the and the nurture that causes us to act out and and go against the good the inherent good nature that we have case in point uh, just one article. You can Google this, and you'll you'll find a bunch of them. Just one article. When I was doing my study for this, that I just Googled that idea of human beings being uh, inherently good. Uh, the first thing that popped up, I think it's from CNN. Yeah, CNN is from 2018, but it's CNN and uh, it's their uh, health website. It says Nonviolence Good Wisdom Project. Project is the name. But the byline on that particular uh, online article was breaking news alert. People are inherently good, nonviolent. Okay. And, and again, that, that sounds good. <laughs> it sounds correct to us to say, because we look out into the world and we see people and we say, Hey, there, there are a lot of people who generally seem to do a lot of good things and good deeds in our world and it seems that there are you know if we're honest about it there's an equally a, a lot of people who do bad things but not necessarily horrendous atrocious uh you know kinds of things like the hitlers or the mass shootings or uh, those kinds of things we have those and they seem to be um you know more sparse than uh, just the common everyday um, minor evil, if you want to look at it that way, or sinfulness that people do. But w w even with that, we look at sin in, in levels, and I get it. In some aspect, we ought to look at sin in degrees for a long time. You know, I, I refused to, to do that from a biblical perspective, look at sin in different degrees, uh, because theologically the bottom line is that it, it only takes one sin one breaking of uh, God's command to make us guilty of all so in that sense one sin is enough to cause us to be guilty before holy righteous God and we've talked about in another podcast uh, on our theological Thursdays I think it was uh, that we dealt with the idea of sin and inherent sin when we dealt with the issue of uh uh, the holy hatred of God. And you can go find that uh, in, in our podcast or on our Facebook live or on YouTube. I, I got it there as well. But when we think about that, you know, sin, we look at sin in one, in one way is correct to say that sin is um, 
in a sense, all sin causes us to be equally guilty. And just one causes us to be uh, guilty, no matter what that sin is, before a holy, righteous God. But in the same token, if you look at the Old Testament and look at the way uh, the Lord uh, instructed Israel in the in the uh, in the, the the law code that he gave Israel and in, in the the moral law that he gave Israel, there there seem to be degrees and hierarchy hierarchy of sin, if you will, uh, in the Old Testament at least, as how the punishment was meted out for those sins. So in in that sense, it is more egregious uh, for someone who murders versus someone who tells, you know, what we would call in our culture a white lie. The the penalty for those ought to be different, at least from uh, a governmental standpoint, right? Uh, From a judicial standpoint in a human terms. But in the grand scheme, they, they are equally as guilty before a holy, righteous God. But I get that there are varying degrees because we don't look at someone who tells a white lie and someone who commits a, a mass shooting at a, at a school. We don't look at them the same way and we don't look at those sins the same way. So I think that's, that is the reality. And I think the Bible bears that out. They ought to be looked at in more egregious ways, the more egregious the sin is. But in the grand theological scheme of things, all of them are equally uh, enough to cause us to be guilty before a holy, righteous God. And so even though we think that we are good uh, and we minimize our sinfulness, and even if we do realize, which most people do, that, hey, I do sin in my life and, you know, I'm not as bad as some people are, but I still, I know I do things that are not always uh, 100% holy or 100% right. And so, but, but we look at that as the norm and we say, well, we're still decent, basically good people, just like this post said. And you know, the, the whole idea of uh, uh, here's another one that I googled. I guess I should just read it. Uh, and again, this comes from um, uh, the website's NDS uh, MCO Observer. NDS MC Observer. And it's from 2021. Uh, and the byline on that is regardless of whether or actually this is a quote from within um, uh, within the article, the byline was are people inherently good. But the conclusion they come to at the end of this article was regardless of whether we are inherently good or bad, we have a potential for good. Uh, it's up to us to act on that good. And if, hey, if we're honest about humanity, that's the way we view ourselves, right? That's the way most people view humanity, and that's the way uh, we, if we're honest, probably view ourselves. And we're basic, decent, good people, uh, and we have the responsibility to act on that good. We have the potential to do the good, uh, even if we understand there's a little bit of bad uh, in in us. But we, we tend to think we're generally good. Well, the problem is, though we're not good and that leads to this idea of correcting our anthropology from the get-go okay and i think that'll help us understand how this radical change uh impacts even those who are eight years old so it doesn't matter if you're eight or 80 uh when you come to faith in christ there is a radical change that takes place in your life and granted the practical aspect of that may look 
greater in someone who's lived 80 years versus someone who's only lived eight years. But the fundamental aspect of this radical change is still evident in a person's life, no matter what their what their age is and so i think the first thing we need to do is we got to correct our anthropology and we got to realize what the reality is the reality is we're not good the reality is that we are by nature depraved if you remember when we talked about that segment on on holy hatred we talked about that inherited sin right theologians call it the original sin uh d.a carson he, he he changed the terminology in his systematic theology to i think better captured the idea because uh, he, sometimes we get the original sin confused with Adam and Eve, uh, w- with Satan, who ultimately committed the original sin. And so what D.A. Carson was trying to get across to us is, well, Adam and Eve committed the first sin in humanity, and it became the inherited sin and the inherited nature that all of us uh, inherit as human beings. And the Bible is very explicit about this. We, as human beings, are not good. Now, the first question that comes to your mind is when you look out there and you see people doing good deeds and you'd look at that and you say, hey, that's, that's a pretty good person right there, right? Well, there, there's this idea when it comes to inherited sin and the depraved nature of humanity that we are not as bad as we could be, right? Uh, so there is this element of God's common grace in our life so that it, he, he mitigates, if you will, or, or holds back uh, the totality of evil in this world uh, so that we don't act out as, as uh, evil as we could act out uh, in our world if he were to remove all restraints of his common grace uh, in this world. And even people who appear to do good and you look at you know my life before coming to christ appearing to do good deeds most of the time those do not come from a proper spiritual uh desire to honor and glorify god and i guess that would probably be the ultimate definition of good apart from the regenerative work regenerative work of christ in our life Our ultimate goal is not ultimately to please and glorify and honor God. So we don't do good things for the right reason. And therefore, those good things ultimately uh, are sinful in and of themselves because our motives and and desires and passions are, are sinful because they're not out of a true, pure heart to please God. And I get it. You know, we we still uh live that way sometimes even as christians when we come uh when we go about our daily lives that's why how paul had romans chapter 7 we do fight this battle with the flesh that's prone toward sinfulness and rebellion against the lord but this whole idea that we're trying to drive at in the answering of this question is about the nature of humanity that ultimately is changed although we still drag this fallen flesh the the inner being uh receives that radical change of the lord and that's why paul says in romans chapter 7 what he does uh about this battle that wages on the on with the with the inner man uh with the mind he talks about uh the inner being Uh, he he, his desire is to do uh god's will and to follow after god's law but with the flesh uh, his flesh desires to do to do evil but anyway getting ahead of myself on that just a little bit but the bible makes it very clear Again, and again, I, I, I'm not going to say that we're, we're going to all 
understand this the way we need to understand it. I'm not going to say we're all going to like what we read and hear about ourselves from Scripture. But the point is, this is what Scripture says. Scripture says that we are not good. God is good. We are not. And uh, just a few verses to help bear that out for you. And these are verses, if you're a Christian, you've heard these verses before probably. Um, You've heard sermons on these verses before, so it's not anything new to you. It's just to refresh our mind about what God's Word says about we as human beings prior to the regenerative, redeeming work of Christ in our life. And Jesus answered this question about good, didn't he? You remember when the, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered him. This is Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? None is good except God alone. Now, two things happening, I think, in that verse, and we don't have time to unpack this verse completely, but the two pertinent things is one, uh, he says, Hey, only God is good. There's no other being in this universe that is good but God. Therefore, not one human being is good. So, if you are calling me good, Jesus is implying to this good, uh, this rich young ruler, you are insinu- or you are implying that I am equal with God, which we know he was, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that I am equal with God, in that sense you call me good, but the point he's driving home to this rich young ruler, uh, as the rest of the context bears out, uh, you know, hey, the rich young ruler thought he was good, because Jesus' question to him was, what does the law say? And Jesus says go and do that and he says i've done that from my youth and then jesus obviously in that story tells him there's one thing you like go sell everything you have and come and follow me and he left uh, the rich young ruler left sad because he had great possessions so the moral of the story was hey you think you're good you're not good there's only one being that's good and that is god so humanity is not inherently good according to the bible we are inherently evil i know we don't like to use that term for ourselves right uh, we are inherently evil we're inherently wicked in our core okay that's the inherited sin and god has to do something to r- r- uh, eradicate that in our in our being and david helps us understand this 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 is something that happens to us when we are born into humanity we become a son or daughter of adam adam is our federal head we we are born as a son or daughter of adam and we inherit um, what adam has done uh, in our behalf which is sin against god and so we inherit that sin nature and uh, romans chapter 5 deals with that aspect of the sin nature that we inherit from from adam and that is our birthright as sons and daughters of adam listen to what uh, david said in psalm 51 5 and this is the background for this is david uh, had committed adultery with uh, bathsheba uh, uriah's wife and uh, ultimately uh, had uh, had his had uriah killed her husband killed in battle uh, and the prophet came and confronted him on, uh, as God had instructed about this. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance and contrition before the Lord because of the sin he committed. And David says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive 
<clears throat> me. And again, I say this every time I read this verse, but I think it, it, it bears repeating every time. David's not talking about the act uh, that brought him into the world, the sexual act between his father and his mother that conceived him and the act of birthing that brought him in. What he is saying is, I was born into this world in our vernacular, in our, uh, you know, in, in our 21st century way of looking at this uh, or describing it anyway, is I was born into this world as a son of Adam and therefore I have inherited the sin nature of Adam. So from the womb, uh, from birth, I have this sin nature within me. And again, that leads to other questions that we'll have to answer on another day as it relates to the issue of uh, the age of accountability, what happens to children uh, when they die prior to the point of them coming to the place where they understand that they need a savior and accepting the Lord. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if I got a video on that. I know if you go to, uh, I think it's RK Ministries on WordPress, if you will just uh, Google that, you can find my WordPress uh blog site uh, which has videos and has all the links to these videos and podcasts but there's other material on there as well uh, that you can go find I, i've got I, I i deal with the issue of uh the age of accountability on that <clears throat> on that uh blog site as well so you can go find that article and and read that dealing with the age of accountability which is another to topic for another day perhaps but what David is saying is he's agreeing with Jesus. We are not good. We are born uh, in this state of wickedness and rebellion, this state of sin, this nature of sin that we have. And we prove that, by the way, that we continue to sin in our life, right? Uh, let me get this uh, slid up just a bit. Uh, all right, then the quintessential passage on this idea of our depravity is, uh, there's my cursor, is Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul deals with this in verses 10 through 19. And again, this is, this is you know, the peak of his argument about the depravity of humanity. Uh, and Paul is contrasting Jew and Gentile because there seems to be chapter 1, just a quick snapshot of the Romans up to chapter 3, chapter 1. Uh, Paul gives his, his, uh, th his thesis, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel power of God and salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So you have these two groups of people that he's writing to, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, if you will, in Roman, is in, in the church of, at Rome. And in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, he talks about the depravity of humanity, if you will, men who, who suppress the truth, even though God has revealed himself in general revelation, the creation around us. Uh, men know that there's a God, but they do not worship that God. They worship uh, the creation rather than the creator. And it's not because they don't know, it's because they suppress the truth that they do know and do see. And Paul is, is really looking at the pagan world, the Gentile world, in that section of Romans and the Jews would say, amen, those Gentile pagan dogs, uh, they are suppressing the truth of, of God and they are guilty and without excuse before God because he's revealed himself to them. And then Paul turns the table on the Jews in chapter two. In chapter two, uh, Paul says to you Jews, you Jews are no better off because you are just as guilty as the Gentiles because of, uh, of your sinfulness and all of you, uh, both Jew or Gentile, need to come to the Lord through this righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone as he reveals ultimately uh, in verse beginning in verse 20 in chapter 3. And so that brings us to uh, chapter 
3 verse 9 it talks about you know are the jews any better off or whatever and i think in that passage paul says that he can find all to sinfulness and he goes on to say uh uh what he says in verse 10 in verse 10 he says as it is written quoting from the old testament not not a, a new pauline theology that he just pulled out of the air this is old testament theology that he's bringing into a new testament uh, era the, tw- the first century and, and it is pertinent then and is pertinent now and so paul is saying uh as it is written none is righteous no not one and you know i always like the kid you know when you get to those places none means none right there's no ambiguity in that phrase not one person so he doesn't, he doesn't even he doesn't stop with just none he says not one no not one and then he goes on to verse 11 no one understands no one seeks for god and again he's driving home this point there's not a person who has ever born save the the lord jesus christ who is god in the flesh uh equally god equally man or holy god holy man as uh, theologians say human beings are depraved not one understands not one seeks for god all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good how many times has he told us not a person not one he's driving home that point and then if that's not enough no one does good not even one so how many people are good not one of us are good apart from the redeeming regenerative work of Christ from the from the uh, from the womb to the tomb. Uh, if we remain in, as a son and daughter of Adam, we are not good. We can never be good enough because we're not good. Uh, uh, and so uh, God has to do something for us, whether we're eight or 80. God has to do something to change us radically. And so uh, he goes on to say to describing this this uh, depravity he says their throat is an open grave so the tr- the tra- the the depravity of humanity comes from uh, the inner man and, and it impacts every aspect of our bodies he begins to list it the throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under their lips their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's really the bottom line, isn't it? And there is no fear of God before their eyes. No, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We are all guilty before God. We are all born as depraved human beings who stand guilty before God because of our inherited sin nature and because we continue to willfully sin in uh, this life. So you and I need to understand that the essence of depravity, I think, is seen in this idea of self-centeredness. And I think the essence of depravity is seen today in the things that are on display in our society around us. And I think the, the, the heart of this idea of depravity is rooted in idolatry. 
And that idolatry, the most egregious form of idolatry, and again, this is just my opinion, the most egregious form of idolatry is the idolatry of self. And I think that's what's on display today in our society with uh, the alphabet mafia and all the things that are going on uh, in that community. And not only that, I mean, that's the most prominent thing, right? But it's in every other aspect of our life. If you look at a two-year-old, you're right. The heart of their depravity is displayed in their selfishness and in their self-centeredness because the world is all about them, right? It's me, my, what I want, when I want it right now. And if somebody else has something I want, then I want it. And if I didn't want it, if they got it, then I want it, right? If I'm a two-year-old, but look, that don't stop with two-year-olds, does it? That grows into uh, adulthood in some degree. Most of the arguments that are uh, I get in or most of the time if I get angry is because things didn't go the way I wanted things to go, right? And again, that's not to say that we don't have plans and agendas and that, that there's never a time that we ought to be righteously indignant. But I'm just saying most of the time it's when we don't get our way that we display, um, I think, the peak of our depra- depravity a lot of times. <clears throat> and we can talk more about that and in, in what it looks like later on. Paul has some good passages about uh, depravity in other places in the scripture. But the point we need to get to is we need to understand that every one of us are depraved, whether you're 8 or 80. Uh, we are depraved human beings, and it takes a radical uh, change, redemptive change by God through Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, to change us, to change our nature, to change the way we think, and the change, which ultimately impacts the way we live. And so that leads us to the, the next aspect of this is we must have a biblical view of redemption. And again, uh, I've said this probably too many times already, but I'll say it again uh, in this way. Redemption is radical whether you're eight or you're 80. And I talked about this in the introductory portion. Uh, the main reason is because if we understand our nature properly, we are all totally and utterly depraved and stand guilty before a holy, righteous God. We are, as Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. We have a heart of stone, and God does heart transplant on us. He takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh, or he brings us from death to life, from darkness to life. Now, it doesn't matter how old you are when you come to faith in Christ. All of those things are true about you in that moment. You once were in darkness. Now you are in light. You once were uh, in the children of wrath and the children of death. But now you are in life and the children of God's righteousness and, and grace. And so, uh, in that sense, salvation, at whatever age you engage in it, is a radical impact and change in your life. Just a couple of verses to help us real, realize that. Redemption is a transformed heart. Just a passage to back up what I said a while ago. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, And I will give you a heart, uh, give you a new heart, a new spirit, I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, 
So it's about that heart transplant. I don't care if you're a child or if you're an adult. When you come to faith, there is an inner man. When we think about the heart, we think about not that uh, organ that pumps blood through our bodies, but we think about the inner man, the, the central processing unit, to use the vernacular of our uh, day, uh, or our inner being, the real us is what he's talking about. There's a new, and really it all picks, uh, picks, uh, paints this picture of this new nature that God gives us in the inner man. He changes who we are in a radical way uh, on, in the inner man. And then uh, redemption is a transformed nature. Uh, so 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And again, there's no age on, uh, you know, in that uh, verse. No matter what age you come to Christ, the reality is true in every age of a person who may come to Christ. They are a new creation. They have been transformed by God in a radical way. And so the, the, the last or third aspect of this uh, point about redemption is redemption is a transformed state of existence. And again, this goes back to the death to life uh, aspect we were talking about. Uh, John writes in John chapter 5, verse 24, uh, as Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. And again, that's the radical change of our state of existence, if you will. We were once walking in death. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But when Christ redeems us, whether we're 8 or 80, we are transformed from death to life. That is radical change in us which ultimately will manifest in the way we live our lives. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the end. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And if you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, follow the course, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul summarizes it real nicely there, doesn't he? All of us, no matter who we are, no matter who you are and what century you're born in, all those who have been born before us and all those who will be born after us are this. We were all children of wrath. We were all, uh, you know, uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to uh, the flesh and according to the way of this world, the fulfilling desires of, of the flesh. <clears throat> and it's only in Christ that that changes in us. And that is a drastic change. I don't care who you are or how old you are. That's a drastic change of your being, of your nature that takes place. And so... That leads really to the third part, because when I talk about radical change, that's one aspect of it. It is a radical change. Just the mere fact that we are saved is a radical change in us. 
And if that happens to us, it ought to impact the way we live our lives. And that leads to this idea of sanctification, because that's really what we're talking about, right? What, what does sanctification or the sanctified life look like as a believer who is an adult comes to faith in Christ? What does that sanctifying process look like? And what does, how does it manifest itself uh, in this new life as opposed to the old life? And again, I grant it for someone who's an adult, it, the, the distinction of the sanctifying mark of Christ in them and the work of Christ in them may look drastically different than the way they used to live, but it may not because not every adult, you know, has done the same or lived the same life and lived the same uh, way. But at the core of their being, this radical change has taken place and it changes who they are at the core of their being, which ultimately will impact the way they live their life and honor God and, and desire to fulfill the will of God in their life. Their, their wants and desires change from wanting to satisfy the flesh to wanting to satisfy uh, God and honor God and glorify God and walk after God and love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the same thing I think happens in a child when they come to faith in Christ. Yes, they have not lived a life where they have been in steeped in debauchery, uh, probably at eight years old or, or however old they may be, 10, 12, 13, whatever it is. Uh, but they have demonstrated depravity in their life in some way. And when they come to faith in Christ, there is a radical change that takes place in them and they begin to exhibit this desire and passion to follow after the things of God and that manifest itself in their life and they no longer have a desire and passion to follow after the flesh and to fulfill the desires of the flesh they too want to love god with all their heart soul mind and strength and i get it at eight years old there's a limited way that you can demonstrate that in your life uh, as opposed to an adult where you have more opportunity and more uh relational aspects that will give you the ability to present present that in a broader spectrum uh, in your life but the fundamentals are still the same as it relates to this radical change and the impact of our desires of our heart and the way we live our life and then i, I thought about that you know how, how does how do we exhibit that in our life as adults how do we exhibit that in our life as as children if we come to faith in the lord and again i think one of the greatest ways we see that change is just in the working of the Holy Spirit to sharpen us and to uh, conform us more into the image and the character of Christ. And one of the ways we see that manifest in our life is according to the fruit of the spirit that is manifest in our life. And Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. First, he begins with what the fruit of the flesh is, what the work of the flesh is in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Now, first three, we'd say, hey, that's probably not, we probably might not see that in a child's life. But we've already talked about this issue of idolatry. 
we see idolatry in a child's life, especially if you if you accept the premise that I've made that the greatest ma- the greatest manifestation of idolatry is the idolatry of self and being self-centered. Um, and we see that in display all over the world today. But in our children, we see that little air of selfishness and self-centeredness and that this is all about me and my uh, in, in, in a two-year-old, right, or, or a young child even. So in, in those ways, we can see those elements of the flesh that are present there. Uh, it goes on to talk about sorcery and enmity. We see enmity sometimes in the lives of children. We may not see drunkenness or orgies. Those are more adult things, if you will. Um, but but then it goes on saying things like these. So the idea is that whatever sinful activity you can think of to put in that blank. And we see uh, some elements of those sinful activities even in children, these works of the flesh. We see that ever in our children. We don't, we don't have to teach them how to live like that. It comes natural to them how to live uh, following after flesh and how to live in sinfulness. It comes natural to them just like it came natural to us. Parents have to work hard in their children's life to teach them how to follow after the precepts of, of God. But I think when a child comes to faith in Christ, the same thing happens to that child that happens to an adult. He changes us inside in a radical way. It changes our inner man, changes our inner being, gives us a new nature, which that begins to change our mind, right? Our mind begins to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we begin to display in our actions and our attitudes the the fruit of the Spirit, uh, like Paul goes on uh, to say uh, in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, uh, love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no there is no uh, law. And and so I think we you will begin to see those kinds of things evident in the life of even an 8-year-old when they come to faith in Christ and how they treat uh, their brothers and sisters, how they treat their cousins, how they treat their friends, how they treat their parents, right? Uh, and so as we think about the fruit of the spirit, and again, uh, this is nine aspects. I think there's nine in there aspects of the fruit of the spirit, right? It's not the fruits of the spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit in this fruit of the spirit. Uh, some portion of all of these aspects ought to be evident in our life and they ought to be growing and increasing as we continue to mature in Christ Jesus. But we can see that transformation even in the, the youngest believer that comes to faith in Christ, uh, or at least we ought to see that transformation in their life, just like we see that transformation working itself out in those characteristics of this fruit of the Spirit in the life of every adult that comes to uh, Jesus Christ, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's one other aspect of this, I think. And again, we don't like to talk about this because in our day we're antinomian, right? We, we, we have an aversion to the law in the sense of the law of God. Uh, I get it. We're, we're, we're no longer, we're under grace. We're not under the law. We can't be saved by the works of the law, right? Uh, no man can be saved by the works of the law. The law is our schoolmaster. It's our teacher to show us that we are sinful, that we need a savior. Uh, and we're, not, we're never going to be right, made right by God by accomplishing the law, one, because we can't accomplish the law. 
apart from the regenerative work of Jesus Christ in our life and in the help of God through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Paul bears out in Romans chapter 8. But we also got to understand Paul says in Romans, hey, the law's not bad. It's good. All right. And then Paul begins to tell us uh, that, hey, when you come to faith in Christ, when God sanctifies you or begins sanctifying you through the work of the Holy Spirit, one of the reasons he does that is so that the uh, aspects of the law of God might be fulfilled in you. Right. So there's this element uh, in this concept of redemption that once we come to faith in Christ, that we ought to do good works and good deeds. And I think the good works and good deeds are defined by the moral code of God and the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments. And if you go through the New Testament, all but one of the Ten Commandments is mentioned as still being um, relevant to the New Testament believer, if you will. And, and the one that's not mentioned is the Sabbath day uh, in, in that sense of being binding or still relevant. Uh, we know that we still call, we still honor the, the essence of that law by setting aside one day a week where we come to worship our Lord and Savior and take that day of rest, if you will, in worshiping our Lord and Savior, and that's another topic for another day that we could talk about. But listen to what Paul says about this law. He says, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And we say, praise the Lord, amen. And then he says in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, right? And again, there's two aspects of that statement. The righteous requirement of the law ultimately is fulfilled by Christ as it relates to our guilt uh, for because of sin, because of our, our, our inherited sin and our own sin because of that guilt. Christ deals with our guilt. He deals with our sin on the cross of Calvary and he appeases God's wrath and he, he appeases uh, God's uh, justice or satisfies God's justice as it re relates to the law for us and in us when we come to faith in Christ as he comes to through the Holy Spirit indwell us. But listen to the last part of that. Verse 4 again, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then he says, I think he's explaining to us how these righteous requirements are ultimately fulfilled in us or manifest that it has been fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, what's the difference? Well, we just saw that in Galatians, didn't we? What does it look like? What's a snapshot of what it looks like to walk in the flesh? Well, it's sexual immorality, it's idolatry, it's impurity, it's sorcery and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries, dissension, division, drunkenness, envy, all those things. What does it look like to walk in the spirit? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where did all those things come from? They come from the Ten Commandments, I think. Because what does the Ten Commandments teach us? Well, honor your father and your mother, right? Teaches us not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Teaches us not to steal 
what is not ours. Teaches us not to commit uh, adultery. And he teaches us not to covet our neighbor's wife or covet anything that our neighbor has. All right. And he goes on and on in those things. And I think those things are embodied in how we treat one another and how we flesh out um, this this fruit of the spirit and, and manifest these um, works of the law, if you will, in the way that we live our lives. And this is not the only place that Paul ties these things together and saying that the way we live as human beings, uh, ultimately in, in our redemptive state, ought to exhibit the holiness of God. And how do we know what the holiness of God looks like? What does the holiness of God require of us? Well, we know what it looks like from the moral code of God. And so if you just think about this idea of sanctification in uh, in the life of an adult, yes, adult may have lived a debaucherous lifestyle. You can think of the worst lifestyle you've seen a person live that if that has been radically changed and radically saved. And, and we look at that person and we say, man, look where they were and look where they, where they come, what God has done for them. And what a testimony that person has in their life. They were steeped in drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it was. And God radically saved them. And now they're living a holy, righteous life and honoring and glorifying the Lord. What an amazing testimony, right? And, and hey, that is a testimony of God's ability to save a person from the, as the preachers say, from the guttermost to the uttermost, quoting or borrowing uh, some language from the book of, of Hebrews. But what about the eight-year-old? What about the little kid? Hopefully they're not steeped in alcohol and drugs and, and uh, promiscuous sexuality. If there is, there's something wrong with the adults around them uh, greatly that they need to be put in jail, under the jail, or on the hangman's noose if those things are going on in, in under their charge with this child. But what about that child? Well, we've talked about the little bit uh, elements of sinfulness we see in children how can it matter how can these things be manifest how can we see uh, this radical change if you will in the life of a child well again I, I have to go to the ten commandments you know number five right right after the first four which deal with our relationship with god and the first one in our vertical relationship is honor your father and mother so that your days may be long on the earth what may it look like that a child has radically changed well Maybe they honor their father and mother by doing what they say, when they say, with a respectful attitude. They don't have to be, we, we don't have to go to these absurd uh, ways that parents try to get children to do things and bargaining with them, like counting one, two, and three, right? And you need to do this. All right, one. All right, two. All right, three. What are you doing when you do that to your kid? You're teaching them delayed obedience, right? You're not teaching them to obey you. You're teaching them that I can walk this far until I have to obey you before something drastic happens to me. No, uh, that's another topic for another day too, the idea of how we ought to discipline in our children, but we may see it, that radical change in their life manifest in that way, that they honor their father and their mother by doing what they're told when they're told a respectful attitude. And that the, the, the greatest uh, way to demonstrate this radical change where they may have been, you know, uh, one of those kids where they had to count to 
three or be threatened with their life before they they done anything maybe it's that that they they go and and they 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 share with their siblings or with their friends and they 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 don't fight and they don't argue maybe those are exhibits of this this change that take place in their life but those things will grow as they mature we will see these elements of change and greater and greater i think uh manifestations as they move closer and closer to adulthood and that leads to the area of the responsibility of parents and uh helping in this sanctifying process that the lord is working in their heart to to lead them and guide them in this because they at eight just like we even at if we're 80 or 50 you know whatever you are uh in, in your life uh, we still drag this flesh and they drag that flesh. And so that flesh is still prone towards sinfulness. And so we will lapse into uh, areas of sin, give in the temptation, but our hearts ought to be grieved by that as followers of Christ. And that's another e e uh, example of this radical change that's come into our life, that we are grieved over our sinfulness and our wrongdoing, whether we're eight or 80, when we come to faith in Christ and we're driven to repent uh, to uh, the Lord over those places of sinfulness. And again, repentance in that sense is not talking about that, hey, I'm just making my list of sin and I'm going to get my absolution. Christ has already dealt with that on the cross of Calvary. What our repentance does is we're saying, hey, metanoia, I'm exercising my mind. I, gr I agree with what you say, Lord, about sin. And I have, I see that I have broken your law. I see that I've gone against your character and your will. And I need you to help me not do that again. I need you to sanctify sanctify me in this area of my life. And that's a reality of a child and an adult who've come to faith in Christ. That's an evidence of this radical change that's taking place because before we may not be too concerned about our sinfulness, right? It's no, no big deal. Who cares? Um, because we don't realize the nature and the, and the gravity of the sinfulness that we, that we have. So I guess what I'm saying is when I think about this radical change that takes place in our life I, I i will i will give it to you that radical change uh, may look a little bit more radical in one who's lived a long life and who had maybe more opportunity to sin than it does in an eight-year-old but the radical change is still evident in an eight-year-old by the way that they live their lives and honoring their parents and in in living amongst uh, other children and siblings and how they treat other adults and how they treat authority all of those things will be manifest of this radical change that's taking place in their inner nature and in their inner being and it's our job as adult christians their parents their uncles their cousins whoever we are that may have some influence in their life our teachers or whatever to guide them in this sanctifying process uh, that God has is working in their life and to help them along that way and I think um, you know just like we need help as adults the idea of d discipling uh, Christians who come to faith in Christ so um, that's I guess what I mean by this radical change that takes place in our life and I get it when I'm speaking to adults maybe on that side of it uh, I'm pushing back hard against this idea that you can you can live you can claim to be a follower of Christ 
and you can continue to live your life as if there is no change in you at all. You can continue to live your life just like the rest of the world who is outside of a relationship with Christ, who've never been redeemed, the lost people in this world. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you cannot continue to live that way in your life. So when I say things like that, yeah, I'm pushing hard against adults on that because there is this theological, uh, I guess, false theology out there amongst Christians and amongst you know churches and past some pastors who believe, hey, boom, ticket punched straight into the gate, right? And I get it. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in our vernacular. It's not the best way to say it, but once saved, always saved. You can't lose it because if you could lose it, you would lose it, right? Once you come to faith in Christ, it's a done deal because it's all of him and none of us, right? It's all of what he's done and none of what we have done. I can't save myself and I can't unsave myself. I, I believe that with all of my heart. But while we quote, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We very rarely quote verse 10. We are created by, by God for good works, right? And we're created to work, walk in them. And he goes on to say before, you know, that we were created beforehand to walk in them. And that's another topic for another day. But the essence of verse 10 is that God created us. He expects from us when we come to faith in Christ that there will be good works to follow. There will be a transformation in our life. Uh, and we will live and act differently. And I get it. I'll concede that point. It may look a little more drastic in an adult than it does a child, but the fundamental elements are still there in the child. And you should be able to see that change in their life by how they treat their parents and interact with other people uh, in this world. So that's my spiel on that. Uh, this week on Theology Thursday, uh, we'll, we'll tackle another question Next week, uh, I don't know exactly what question I'm going to tackle uh, next week. I'll have to look at it, and we will we'll give you, give you a, a heads up, hopefully a little more than I did today. But, again, I uh, hope you will go and find the podcast and that you will listen to it, that you will subscribe to it, that you will share it, and go find me on YouTube and on Rumble and go like those and subscribe to those and hit the little bells or whatever the button is so that you can get notifications when we put new content up there. And just share it with your friends uh, so we can continue to impact this world with the truth of God's word. So until next time. May the Lord keep you and bless you and cause his face to shine upon you.